At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today begins Black History Month, and we'll welcome February with a special segment in our series, Atlanta's Savory Stories. Contributors, Chef Asada Reed and food historian Akila McConnell will tell us about the food that fueled the civil rights movement. For the second year in a row, MTV Entertainment Studios has collaborated with Atlanta's Morehouse College to celebrate the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The result is the student-led short film, Keep Moving, which was released on MLK Day and will continue to run throughout Black History Month. Later this hour, City Light senior producer Kim Drobes will have more from the people that helped this project come together. First, another Morehouse College film feature. Early in January, WABE held an event in front of a live audience at the Plaza Theater to celebrate the launch of our new TV series, Atlanta on Film, the WABE Studios original highlights two of Atlanta's prominent film festivals, Out on Film and the Morehouse College Human Rights Film Festival. During the live event at the Plaza, I had the opportunity to speak with both festival's directors, as well as a filmmaker included in each festival. Today, we'll hear my conversation with Kara Walker, the executive director of the Morehouse College Human Rights Film Festival, and documentary director and writer Roderick Red. His film, The Defenders, will be included in the next episode of Atlanta on Film, which airs on WABE-TV, Monday, February 6th. By the end of the 1950s, there are only four black lawyers in the entire state of Mississippi, three of whom took on civil rights cases. A new documentary, The Defenders, 
focuses on the lawyers who represented African-Americans before and during the civil rights movement. This film is part of this year's Morehouse College Human Rights Film Festival, and it will stream on WABE-TV as part of our new Atlanta on Film series. Roderick Redd is the writer and director of The Defenders. He joins me now along with the executive director of the Morehouse College Human Rights Film Festival, Kara Walker. Welcome to City Lights. <laughs> Roderick, when did you first decide to make this film? Yes, great question. Thanks, I'm, I'm super glad to be here. Um, I was approached by um, some people at the uh, Foundation for Mississippi History. Two people on that board were judges in our state. Uh, these people were just you know, incredible people, uh, Judge Fred Banks and Judge Reuben Anderson. They really wanted to tell the stories of these three black lawyers, Carsey Hall, R.J.S. Brown, and um, Jack Young, who were those three lawyers in the state during the late 1950s into the 60s, who were the only ones who would take civil rights cases. And they really wanted to tell that story because they knew that not a lot of people knew who those guys were. There aren't any buildings named after them in Mississippi, no streets, and there aren't, you know, there aren't even many things named after you know, Fred Banks, Judge Fred Banks and Judge Reuben Anderson, who were the first and second Mississippi Supreme Court justices in the state of Mississippi. Mm. Uh, and they learned from under them. So um, anyway, long story short, they, they, they really want to tell the story. They worked with the Mississippi Department of Archives and History, and we, we got together, and they really wanted to put a modern spin on it. And they reached out to me and my company, and we got behind it, and we had to make it happen. So. Kara, I would think that viewing this film was a no-brainer for you, but I don't want to presume the order of things. When did you decide that this had to be a part of the festival? Yes. Um, yeah, it was a no-brainer. Uh, <laughs> this film was not only selected to be a part of the festival, but it was also nominated in its category that it was submitted. Um, and it, you know, we selected this film because it was a new story from a new voice and a story that you don't often hear about. We often hear about the big civil rights leaders, but we don't often hear about the attorneys who actually represented them and helped them to, you know, get out of jail and make bail when they were arrested. I think that some of the revelations brought out in the film speak to the importance, really, the necessity of telling this story. You learn there. There were only two institutions in the entire state of Mississippi where one could get a law degree, and both of those were closed to black people. So these four stupendous lawyers had to study the law themselves. The other kicker is if one graduated from the University of Mississippi with a law degree, 
those students did not need to take the bar exam. But these African-American students who wanted so desperately to defend human rights, freedom, be a part of our supposed fair and just society, they had to take the bar exam. Carrie, you said something about this isn't necessarily a sexy topic. These films don't always make it to Hollywood. I think the story that you are telling has to be amplified and you are elevating it because we as Americans need to know and students of our collective history need to know these facts. That's correct. Yeah, that was uh, two good facts to be brought up. And it really speaks to the, the extent to which, in particular, Mississippi was unique in this kind of racism and how entrenched it was in society. We would go to a law school, not have to take the bar, while black people couldn't even go to you know, law school and they had to go learn on their own. And then, you know, there were still black lawyers at the time, very few, but there were some that didn't go to law school, but they did study and didn't end up passing the bar. You know, those are just kind of those unique stories that, you know, really speaks to the, the, who we are as a nation, but just also to that specific uniqueness of Mississippi. And, you know, it's my home. I'm from Mississippi, born and raised. So I'm always honored to be able to kind of tell those stories and just reminding people kind of what went on during those times. Yeah. Marion Wright Edelman is featured prominently in the film, and that was her voice whom you heard say, Mississippi was the most closed society of a closed society. Not an honor to have that, but a testament to what these people accomplished. In the opening, when we see that very proud, dignified lawyer say, you couldn't do this without lawyers. I, I, I thought for a moment, um, I don't know, was it the 80s or 90s, when there was that slew of lawyer jokes? You know, and then I thought, this is not lawyer jokes. Um, and I was hoping you would talk a bit about just what it took for these people to go in front of a hostile judge, of an all-white jury, and yet be able to focus on the task at hand. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, we, we got to speak to some great people who told some stories. Like you mentioned, Marion Wright Edelman. And for those who don't know, Marion Wright Edelman was the, uh, she founded something called the, the, the Children's Defense Fund, which is a large nonprofit that focuses on um, children's well-being. But she's also, um, she was also before that, she was a lawyer, a civil rights lawyer in Mississippi. And she took on a young lawyer who was also in the documentary, The White Man. Uh, his name was uh, Mel Leventhal, uh, who was a, a white lawyer who came down from New York City. And uh, Marion Wright Edelman is an inspiration to a lot of different people. Martin Luther King wrote about her. Um, uh, she gave Hillary Clinton her first job uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, her son is a uh, documentary winning filmmaker, uh, filmmaker you know, himself. But if you can imagine 1959, you know, a young woman like Marion Wright Edelman coming to Mississippi, you know, defending these people in front of an all-white jury, in front of an all-white judge, 
it was so, that was such a crazy thing at the time. You know, people would just look at her with, you know, she would tell stories about people just looking at her with their mouths wide open. Imagine being a white man in a courtroom in Mississippi in 1959, and this little black woman comes in here and starts to argue a case. Yeah, this was like the craziest thing they'd ever seen before. And so, you know, there was a lot of stories where people, you know, Mel Leventhal came from New York City to live, and he worked in the Mississippi Delta for like 10 years. And look, the Mississippi Delta is still one, is probably the most poorest, you know, region in this nation today, but it's very modernized now. You can still get around with cars, there's buildings, and there's McDonald's and stuff. <laughs> Coming to the Mississippi Delta in the late 50s and the 60s, you, you didn't want to be a part of that. And he came from New York City and lived there and entrenched himself in that community for decades. And so these people came, and then obviously we talk about Reuben Anderson and Judge Banks and, and, uh, and, and the ones that came before that. They, they just worked around it. It was incredible to hear the stories about, you know, we as people can do a lot of stuff. We kind of work around bad situations. And so to them back in the day, it was, it was kind of normal. But, you know, it's good to be able to kind of look back on hindsight, bring it up to the forefront, and showcase, you know, from the front end, like, wow, that was crazy. Y'all weren't scared back then? And they were like, well, I really wasn't even thinking about it, you know? And so, yeah, it's, it's incredible stories to be able to tell. Kara, if it weren't for these lawyers and many of the freedom riders, civil rights activists, and wrongly accused black men and women at best, would have been locked up for a very long time, at worst killed, mm -hmm. and many were. How can this film inspire modern, contemporary activists, students who are viewing it on campus? Is that in your mind when you select? Yes, it absolutely is. Um, I believe this film the Defenders, I want to say the name of the film again, The Defenders. Um, I believe this film will inspire many to think about activism outside of its traditional, um, the way people traditionally think about activism, and that's marching or protesting or even speaking to large crowds, but also activism in a more local form in terms of writing to your local newspaper and taking photographs and filmmakers being, becoming activists. Um, because if we didn't have filmmakers like Roderick, we, there would be no documentation of what happened during that time. So I'm hoping that this film will inspire the youth to, to look at activism in, different, in its different forms. And to make us revere the courageous lawyers who clearly were not in this for the money right. and risked their lives to do what they did. It's a wonderful film. Congratulations, Roderick. Thank you so much. And now we can all speak those names. Thank you, Kara. That was my conversation with the director and writer Roderick Red and Kara Walker, the executive director of the Morehouse College Human Rights Film Festival. The Defenders will air on WABE-TV as part of our Atlanta on Film series, Monday, February 6th. In a moment, 
the next installment of our food series, Atlanta Savory Stories. This month, contributors Chef Asada Reed and Akila McConnell focus on the food that fueled the civil rights movement. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Atlanta's Savory Stories is our bi-monthly series where contributors Chef Asada Reed and food historian Akila McConnell bring us stories and recommendations from Atlanta's diverse culinary landscape. In honor of Black History Month, we'll hear about the role of food as a source of pride and at times even a form of resistance in African-American communities. Here are Chef Asada Reed and culinary historian Akila McConnell. Today, we are talking about one of my very favorite topics, and that is food as a form of resistance. It is the perfect discussion for Black History Month, right, Asada? Absolutely, especially since the 2023 national theme for Black History Month is Black resistance. And I know when we think of resistance, we immediately think of leaders like Dr. King, Congressman Lewis, and Mrs. Rosa Parks. But today, we are going to be sharing the story of food entrepreneurs and restaurateurs who resisted. In fact, I would venture to say that there is no city in America in which restaurateurs have risen up more than Atlanta. What do you think, Asada? As an ATLian, I approve that message. <laughs> Um, resistance is in our food DNA and giving back is who we are as a food community. 
this story of food resistance, it actually goes all the way back to the founding of our city. And it begins with a man named Ransom Montgomery. Asada, I know that you've heard me tell this story before. It's one of my very, very favorites. So It's a great one. It's a great one. Tell our listeners about Mr. Montgomery. Yes. So let's rewind it all the way back to the very founding of the city of Atlanta. In 1849, just two years after the railroad came to Atlanta, an enslaved man named Ransom Montgomery was rowing his raft on the Chattahoochee River. Now he sees that the bridge on the Chattahoochee was on fire. There was no one nearby because I mean, this is 1849. This whole area is just wilderness, forest. There's no, you know, I-85. No I-20, no, no I-20, 285. No, nothing, <laughs> nothing. If he wanted to go back to the village, he would have had to get onto a horse and, you know, get himself all the way back to the village of Atlanta. And it truly was a village with like 300 people back then. So Ransom on his own decides that he is going to extinguish this fire. He spent the entire day trudging water from the Chattahoochee up to the bridge. He did extinguish the fire and he ultimately saved the 100 passengers on the Western and Atlantic Railroad train, as well as the train itself. Incredible man, right? Heroic, absolutely. Yeah, so um, the entire state of Georgia, the railroad, they all were so grateful. And the state of Georgia purchased his manumission. And he, uh, Ransom Montgomery, technically became the only slave owned by the state. Um, but for all intents and purposes, what this meant is that he was a free man. And the Grateful Railroad gave him a small piece of land near the railroad station uh, in the village of Atlanta. So at this time, uh, in the late 1840s, he was only the second free Black person in Atlanta's history to own property. Wow. Yeah, I mean, amazing. So he built this really small house, but more importantly, he decided that he wanted to set up his own business. And the business he set up was the city's first food vendor at the train station at the time. He sold coffee and cakes at the train depot, making him Atlanta's first Black food entrepreneur and the first paid Black businessman in Atlanta's history. Oh my God, that is so incredible. Like he was out here doing Starbucks before Starbucks was even a twinkle in anybody's eye. Cake and you, coffee you got at it. a train station. That is brilliant. I love it. it, it that just inspires me as an entrepreneur. But what's that got to do with resistance? No, so great question. And this is where the story gets even more interesting. So, you know, he was making bank because yeah. here he was, he had Starbucks at the train station. <laughs> he says, well, he's not just going to use the money for himself. He's going to support the needs of the enslaved community. So, oh. yeah. So I told you, right. This is, right. this is our food DNA. So he and his brother came up with a idea of building a church entirely for the enslaved population. Um, prior to this, the enslaved population had been basically sharing the, the church that the white people in the town had also attended, but the timings weren't right. So Ransom Montgomery and his brother, they receive land from Colonel L.P. Grant, who at the time was Atlanta's largest landowner, and established 
Bethel AME at what was then called Jenkins Street um, and is today near Grady Hospital. And now this is the moment, Asada, after the Civil War, the Montgomery brothers sold the Bethel AME property and they purchased a better and bigger parcel on what was then known as Wheat Street to establish their new church, which was named Big Bethel AME. There we go. You got That's it, right? That's an Atlanta icon. Yeah. So Wheat Street in the late 1800s came to be known as Auburn Avenue. And Auburn Avenue and the Sweet Auburn neighborhood is, of course, the world famous neighborhood that birthed and housed the American Civil Rights Movement. But all that start, the Sweet Auburn neighborhood, Big Bethel AME, that start came from this one incredible man and his food entrepreneurship. So we have Ransom to thank for Sweet Auburn, the Big Bethel legacy, and the cradle of the civil rights movement right here in our great city. Exactly. And Ransom's story shows that food was resistance and has always been resistance here in our city. Who we are as a city, who we are as a country was built from the savings of restaurateurs, bakers, and cooks who invested and funded change. I mean, honestly, Asada, I, I could talk about this for hours. Um, I love I, it. You know, I, I have, this is really and truly my favorite um, part of being a culinary historian is identifying these resistors. I love that. I, I think that's such a great story and it goes deep. It went a lot deeper than the story of the burning bridge. So I'm so happy that you shared that with us. And I can see the impact of resistors like Ransom Montgomery. Um, but there's a the dark side of resistance too. As Black food entrepreneurs grew more successful in the years after the Civil War, um, one of those shadows that still permeates um, soul food to this day is the legacy of watermelon. Even though watermelon is historically native to Africa and it was domesticated and cultivated in Africa, it was brought to the Americas through the slave trade and it grew abundantly in the South. It still does. And not only that, you know, watermelon has always been an economic engine in the Black community. So even pre-Civil War, I mean, we're talking about the days that we were talking about with Ransom, enslaved people were permitted to grow and sell their own watermelons, which created a modest income. But that really took off post-Civil War, um, especially among Black women. You know, Black women, they had this incredible agricultural prowess and they were able to make a really good living selling fruits and vegetables. And there's uh, this incredible image. We're going to be putting it in the show notes. And it shows just one year after the Civil War. This is 1866. There was a watermelon market in Charleston, South Carolina. The entire market was run by Black female entrepreneurs. I mean, this is Black girl magic, right? Absolutely. <laughs> um, and Atlanta had one of the largest watermelon markets in the Southeast. Um, many Black women made a significant living through the sale of these fruits. And because of that, uh, I know this may sound hard to believe, given this history and the way um, watermelon is stereotyped today, in the Reconstruction era, watermelon was a symbol of Black freedom. It was a symbol of Black resistance because free Black people grew 
ate and sold the fruit often on their own land, creating economic self-sufficiency. It's actually a big part of the reason why watermelon was frequently served at Juneteenth celebrations as well. So Akila, I want to interject here because even though it is still served at Juneteenth and widely celebrated by all kinds of people, at some point in history, this legacy of watermelon got twisted and turned around and started being used against Black people. Can you illustrate and highlight how that came to happen? Absolutely. I mean, that is really starting to happen in around the 1880s. Um, And that was all of a sudden, all these white farmers and white food entrepreneurs realized that Black food entrepreneurs were threatening the racial order because Black people now had found a way to create economic self-sufficiency. And so white politicians, white newspapers, white media began ridiculing these early Black entrepreneurs for their success. And Watermelon actually became this target, you could say. And what the Southerners, the newspapers, the politicians would say is, by Black people eating watermelon, they were lazy, they were messy, they were juvenile, and they couldn't be trusted with freedom. This racist trope actually became one of the most common in the United States over the next century. And this is why we say that food as resistance has a dark side, because where Black food entrepreneurs succeeded in creating economic self-sufficiency with foods that are difficult to grow or produce, like watermelon, fried chicken, and barbecue, white segregationists in the 1880s through the 1930s, they responded by turning these foods into racist stereotypes. And I have to say that that resistance extends even further, and the African-American community, as it tends to do, often reclaims something that has been recrafted as negative and we reclaim it and we rebrand it we're we're fabulous at rebranding <laughs> and so in, in this case the black entrepreneurs were not different they were not put off by these stereotypes and um soul food has often been demonized as being unhealthy or being quote called quote unquote slave food and i know older people to this day that won't eat certain foods in mixed company watermelon and fried chicken being at the top of the list but Um, In the early 1960s, a writer claimed that Black people had no distinctive cuisine, like the Chinese or the Italians. And Amiri Baraka, we all know Amiri Baraka, the culture critic, responded in his seminal essay titled Soul Food. And he defines soul food as, and I'm going to quote, Hoppin' John, Black-eyed peas and rice, hush puppies, crusty cornmeal bread, cooked in fish grease and best with fried fish, amen, especially fried saltfish, which ought to soak overnight unless you're over 50 and can't take all that salt. Whole cake, pancake, fat back, i.e. strickaline, stricker fat, dumplings, net bones, knuckles, good for both seasoning lima or string beans, okra, pork chops, and barbecue hot enough to make you whistle. I just love the way he describes it. And if you've never read that essay, uh, it is simply just a stunning way and a stunning reflection on soul food. And it was the first time that word soul food was even used. You could just immediately see it in front of you the moment you said barbecue hot enough to make you whistle. 
And that same time period, you know, 1960s, uh, soul food became the food of the civil rights movement. And this was resistance food. Again, one of the stories I love to tell, you know, down the road from us, Montgomery, Alabama, um, not too far from where I grew up, actually, Georgia Gilmore, she sold fried chicken sandwiches to the Black men and women who participated in the Montgomery bus boycott. But she did not save that money. No, she took every penny and gave those profits directly back to the civil rights movement. She used to organize Black women to sell pound cakes and sweet potato pies, fried fish, stewed greens. And she was doing this on the side, by the way, because she also was a cook at a restaurant in town. So this was, she was doing this in her evenings, in her weekends, whatever free time she had. And all that money helped fund the 381-day bus boycott. It paid for the insurance, the gas, the wagons, the vehicle repairs, which helped get Black people across town to the jobs without using buses. Of course, we know, I mean, that Montgomery bus boycott, that was really the moment that spurred the whole movement. Yes, absolutely. And there was a lot of that um, food is resistance here in Atlanta, too, with restaurateurs. Uh, Lucy Jackson at the Busy Bee and James and Robert Pascal, the Pascal brothers at Pascal's restaurant, uh, fed the civil rights movement. And these restaurants are still operational today right here in Atlanta. And they're still serving traditional soul food in mega servings <laughs> for people who are eagerly waiting in line. So if you're new to soul food, or if you have questions like, what's the difference between soul food and Southern food? These restaurants are exhibits A and B, along with other classic soul food restaurants like Q Time, This Is It, and The Beautiful. I don't want to unpack that question right here. I'm just going to say, go taste and see for yourself. Yeah. And you know what? You can't go wrong with anything there. I had to tell you the candy yams at the Pascal's that that's my perception of what candy DM should be. Should um, always be. <laughs> should always be. I feel like this might be, we've had this discussion about candy DMs there multiple times because I just love it so much. Um, but, you know, we talk about these spots like Pascal's and Busy Bee and Q Time and this is it uh, because they're still standing. But there were other Black food entrepreneurs in the 1960s who fed the resistance. Benjamin Beeman, um, he was an incredible restaurateur. Um, he had a restaurant on Auburn Avenue. Dr. King used to walk over there from uh, his offices all the time. And that became the spot where John Lewis and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, they wrote their bylaws they, there. They planned their demonstrations there. Uh, today, unfortunately, that restaurant is a parking lot. Evelyn Jones Frazier and her husband, Luther, they fed Snick and John Lewis at their elegant Frazier's Cafe Society on Hunter Street. And again, this is a restaurant that has closed um, and is today really in terrible condition. So, you know, Asta, we've talked so much about history, but I want to jump to today and talk about how food is resistance today here in Atlanta. So I know you've been talking to a couple of different folks. What what do you have on that? Well, I want to start by just trying to describe this electric event I stumbled across during the local elections last November. Across the street from the Metropolitan Library, there was a whole party going on. I had to stop. There was this drumming beat coming from DJs. 
people on megaphones, a circle of food trucks, and of course, the aroma of something fried, something sweet, and something savory. So your girl had to pull over. But little did I know, I had stumbled upon a party at the polls. Um, and it's a thing. Uh, one of 20 plus organized demonstrations that supplied voters with chairs, information, water, and food before and after they got in line to vote. And I'm sure you've experienced some long wait times with these polls before, right, Akila? I mean, who hasn't? Haven't we all here in Georgia, especially in the last <laughs> few years when, I, I don't know, I think I have now lost track of how many times I've been to the polls in the last few years. It feels like about every other month. But <laughs> since the passage of SB 201, community organizations can't provide what they call voter support, which often looks like passing out water and snacks to voters as they stand in line. Um, one organization, Georgia Stand Up, has found a solution to that, and they continue to push back against voter repression through their party at the polls model. Um, I caught up with their CEO, Deborah Scott, and here's what she had to say about how party at the polls got started. We were one of those groups that were what we call giving voter care. When we saw voters in line, we were handing out um, water and snacks and, and chairs, right? And so we felt like, you know, that law um, was probably written for organizations like us that were helping with mitigating voter suppression, if you will. And so we said, well, what can we do that could still show our communities love um, show resistance. And so resistance is, is also a tool of, um, of movement building. So we measured beyond the 150 feet and went another 150 feet and said, okay, we're not going to just stop with just giving out water and snacks and voter information. You know what? We're going to give out whole meals. So we literally did 22 parties at the polls through general election and early voting. The residents know that they were there. If the voters know that we care, if they get the information before they even get in line, if they get the chair and get the food, then they will stay in line on their own. And we don't have to cross the street. They'll cross the street to get what they need. And what I found to be really impactful is how Ms. Scott uses the food is resistance model demonstrated during the civil rights movement of the 1960s, even today as a cornerstone of community organization. Here she is again describing why food is essential in organizing and strategizing in the community. And always food is a way to connect. So any meeting that we have at Georgia Stand Up always has food. We cannot organize, strategize, or mobilize unless we set the table and literally set the table. We look at it as, you know, uh, what's this saying? If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Literally. So what we're saying is, one, you deserve to be at the table. We will bring a chair or we'll tell you to bring your own chair. We will help and bring the food. And we want to set that model that every time they're organizing, they're setting the table with making sure that people are fed. You can't hear me. You can't organize. You can't edu be educated if you have a hungry belly. That's such an amazing quote and such an amazing story that Miss Scott said, Asada. I have to tell you from a historic mindset, one of the things that people always said about Dr. King and the civil rights movement is that these pastors, they always ate some really good food. In fact, there were new members of the civil rights movement who said that they could never understand how people got through the movement without gaining at least five <laughs> to 10 pounds. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, they say an army marches on his stomach. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and another Deborah came to mind when I was thinking about the modern manifestation of soul food. And that's the award-winning and highly acclaimed Atlanta-based chef, Deborah Von Trees. Ooh, I love her. I love her food. But we should, at this point, she's like a chef celebrity slash spokesperson slash role model, et cetera. Chef Ventries has three restaurants in our city that are steeped in a long legacy of soul food, but with very distinct preparations. And as a chef, I've witnessed other African-American chefs shun soul food, or at least cooking it professionally. And Chef Ventries tells us why she embraced soul food and began playing with it, as she says, to expand this unique cuisine into new realms. Well, I define soul food probably in a, a few different ways. Um, traditionally, it's a term that we use or I use that's associated with the cuisine of African-American culture, um, the cuisine that I grew up with. And, you know, for me, through traveling, um, I've kind of put an extra layer on top of that. And I feel like it is food that tells a story and the story, you know, may include some strife. It may, you know, show tenacity, um, but it, it shows heart. And with that in mind, I feel like that idea of soul food can be placed on foods from different cultures. Um, you know, the base of, of what I do is definitely from how I was raised, how I was brought up, you know, and I was blessed with having an amazing, you know, array of cooks uh, around me, male and female, that all had specialties that they did, you know, but what I knew was at the end of the day, I could taste love in that food. I could taste comfort in that food. You know, there were stories being told amongst us around that food. Each restaurant, I'm still trying to tell stories. While soul food may be their common thread, each restaurant is distinct in its menu and ambiance. And Chef Vantrice gives us a glimpse of how she has mastered and remixed soul food to create stories of food, of people, and of places in each of her restaurants. The original bay as I call it, is Twisted Soul Cookhouse and Fours. Somewhere along the line, it picked up the term of globally inspired soul food. And it allowed me to be very creative and, you know, and show off. Just, you know, quite honestly, as simple as that, show off. You know, I had the ability to travel all over the place and, and dine in people's homes as well as restaurants. And the experiences that I had are those that created the concept of Twisted Soul Cookhouse and Pours. Then the next one I opened was Aretha's. Aretha's at the point. Aretha is my mother's middle name. And I wanted to pay homage to moms, you know, because, you know, going through this, this culinary world, which was very and still is male-dominated, you know, the one thing that a lot of us had in common from the very beginning was the fact that who really we learned how to cook from was a woman. Way back in the day, it wasn't a thing that men were typically doing. It was women, you know, and I wanted to bring this thing full circle and bring it back to those women. Uh, the other restaurant is Serenidad and Serenidad uh, is a Latin soul cuisine. 
you know, that's my little feisty restaurant. And, you know, also within travels, I saw so many beautiful dishes being prepared, a lot of them out of stripe. But when I got here in the United States, a lot of the food that I was seeing from Latin restaurants or Latin themed restaurants were very simple and very Americanized. I wanted to showcase some of the dishes that you can find throughout the Latin culture. And the background of some of my, my Latin soul, uh, sisters and brothers, was definitely what influenced me. And it was, again, that common ground, you know, that connected and, and binds us, you know, that I was looking for. You know, Asta, sometimes it feels like when we're talking about soul food, the stories of resourcefulness, resistance, tenacity, and struggle, they just bubble up to the top. Exactly. But as I was speaking with Chef Vantrice, we what we discovered was the common ground of soul food in the African-American tradition and across other cultures is one simple thing, love. There's some things I've been motivated to do myself as a restaurant owner you know, based on that history of the civil rights movement, you know, knowing that it was a gathering place, it was a safe place for our civil rights leaders uh, back in the 60s or so, we would have comfort to speak our minds, um, to strategize. During the pandemic, when we start having the, the, really the Black Lives Matter movement, for us, it was when I decided to reopen my restaurant. And one of the reasons that I did, actually, the most profound reason was because I felt that was the, it was time and we needed a space. We needed a space. It was so much that was going on that was wrong, that was dangerous. There was looting. You know, there were, you know, restaurants in our own neighborhoods still being destroyed, you know, um, and even outside of our neighborhoods. But you know, opening and having a, a positive space where I could bring people back together and gather, you know, became really the reason I decided to open. And I opened the weekend of Juneteenth with all of this in mind. That's hanging on the traditions and riding the coattails of those that had came before me, you know, just trying to follow with what they had done. We'll post links to all of these restaurants at the WAVE website. And while the story of soul food continues to be written and the recognition and accolades for this contribution to American culture continue to be recognized, I think that's where I want to leave our story of soul food in Atlanta, steeped in that legacy of love. And that's a wonderful place to leave it because love is the ultimate act of resistance. I want to ask our listeners to tap into their past and think of the hands that have fed their bellies and their souls. Think of the dishes and the aromas of their youth and the faces and the names that have fed them. I invite you to bask in the legacy of your own soul food. And as Black History Month unfolds, join us at our tables and in our restaurants and celebrate our legacy with us. Happy Black History Month, everybody. Chef Asada Reed and culinary historian Akila McConnell, food contributors in our series Atlanta's Savory Stories. More information about this installment is on our website, 
wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll hear about a short film created by students from Morehouse College in collaboration with MTV. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. For the second year in a row, MTV Entertainment Studios has collaborated with Morehouse College in Atlanta to celebrate the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. The result is the student-led short film, Keep Moving, which was released on the MLK holiday and will continue to run throughout Black History Month. City Light senior producer Kim Drobes has more from the people that helped this special project come together. This is the most important period of your lives. After college, um, I definitely want to be a screenwriter is really my um, goal. So, you know, I want to go to graduate school, you know, get my master's in creative writing, screenwriting. In long term, my aspirations are to eventually start my own production company. I think it's very important that you recognize the power that your voice holds in terms of the stories that you're able to tell. That was Morehouse CTEM senior Kennedy Womack. CTEM stands for Cinema, Television, and Emerging Media Studies. Dr. Stephanie Dunn is the CTEM's department chair at Morehouse and explains that the program introduces students to the intellectual study of film along with the art and craft of filmmaking. It's sort of a comprehensive program so that they can go out and continue their studies or development at graduate school or into professional industry programs or go to work uh, SPAs on sets. Professor Dunn says that the partnership between the Morehouse CTEMS program and MTV began in a very organic way. It really began with a conversation with myself and Rosa White, who is with MTV. We had met on a totally different project, and in between sets, I was bending her ear on my favorite topic, which is that industry insiders who really care about diversity should recognize the rich pipeline that exists at historically Black colleges. And it would be cool for our students to have opportunities where they're really producing projects that are going to end up on air and she ended up taking it back to the rest of the MTV team, and lo and behold, they loved it. That was September of 2021, and by January 2022, they had their short film on air. David Newman, SVP brand creative at Paramount and MTV, elaborated on the studio's desire to work with Morehouse and create the shorts that celebrate MLK. It has been basically our second year working with the faculty in Morehouse on MLK. Of course, Martin Luther King Jr., 
went to Morehouse, which makes this connection even more special. We took a hands-off approach. We really wanted to look at the students as creators and allow them to write, produce, and star in their own film that focuses on and celebrates Dr. King. Our goal was to just provide the resource, the guidance, and the platform. Dr. Dunn says that the students took on every role in the production of this year's short, which is titled Keep Moving. Each of our senior students had incredibly important graded roles. There was a student that was assigned to assist the director. There was a student who was on casting. There was a student on props and lighting. They were on camera. So they were involved in every facet of production. And before production, they were the creative team. So we were in classes where they were presenting to MTV. So it was very, very collaborative. And Professor Avery O. Williams was head director on production day. And the students were not on the sidelines at all from concept through filming. Morehouse CTEM senior Kennedy Womack explains his role and why he was excited to participate. I was involved in the initial pitching uh, process. I brainstormed alongside my classmates and, uh, you know, helped come up with an idea. During production, I served as a script supervisor. The main incentive was, you know, gaining the experience of working on set and working with professionals in the industry. And, you know, furthermore, being a Morehouse College student, making something to celebrate Martin Luther King, you know, one of our most notable alumni was also an opportunity that I was really excited to be a part of. If you can't fly, run. If you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, crawl. But by all means, keep moving. The short film Keep Moving is running across all MTV Entertainment platforms through the end of February. More information is available on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. 
Listen to Sounds Like ATL Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org.